millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. As always, I am your host, Zach, and I am ready to begin this next chapter of Britain Goes to War. But first, I would like to just remind you guys that When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. So I would encourage you to check that out on iTunes, on the Agora Podcast website, and through the usual channels. Along with this Agora Podcast reminder comes an additional reminder that... The podcast of the month of January was Stephen Guerra's History of the Papacy podcast, so do check that out if you're anyway so inclined. February, meanwhile, because January is thankfully, mercifully nearly over, February will be dominated by the unrelenting force of Tom Daly's American Biography podcast. So check that out if you haven't heard of it already. It's called American Biography. That again, American Biography. Thanks, and enjoy this next installment. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 15. With the declaration of war made upon the Ottoman Empire by Russia in late April 1877, it seemed as though everything British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli had worked for had hit the fan. Ever since revolts had broken out in the Balkans, it had been a struggle to hold the Russians back from acting in the name of their Slavic sympathies, while those within Disraeli's cabinet, including Disraeli himself, possessed ideals and plans with regard to the ever-changing Eastern question, which were constantly being remoulded and adapted to suit the circumstances. The years of stress in foreign policy had somewhat divided his cabinet, and had led to the emergence of three definite strands of opinion within it. First was Disraeli himself, who continued to insist on the importance of acting forcefully, he was more than willing to fight Russia, but above all, he wanted to send her a warning that any occupation of Constantinople would not be tolerated. To Disraeli, the issue of the Russians occupying Constantinople had been the major motivating factor behind his stance in foreign policy. Yet, in addition, Disraeli showed some of the more imperialistic, 
prideful tendencies, which we may also find in some of his more aggressive, belligerent successors in British politics. Individuals that valued the imperial qualities, the right to rule, the importance of sea power, the infallibility of British might, the necessity of defending one's prestige, the high esteem in which one's honour was held, the high position which the reputation of his nation had acquired, all of these were encompassed within an ideology which some historians, like John Charmony in his book Splendid Isolation, among others, have called Beaconsfieldism. Benjamin Disraeli, as the Earl of Beaconsfield, was perhaps the defining figure in conservative British politics in the modern era. But he was not alone in his government. As a son of a highly influential and prestigious British family, Lord Derby was the Foreign Secretary who, for the two years since the emergence of Balkan revolts, had sought to rein in the impulsive characteristics of Disraeli's foreign policy choices. Darby's friendship with the Prime Minister enabled him to have a greater control over Disraeli's emotions than most, but by spring 1877 this control and influence was waning. Despite his best efforts, Darby had been proved fundamentally incorrect in his assumptions, or perhaps hope is the better term, that Russia would not provoke war with the Ottomans. Because this war was very much now in motion, a new host of additional challenges and problems were now posed, to the traditionally conservative foreign secretary. He could not understand the impulses which seemed to govern the Prime Minister. He lamented the possibility that Britain might get involved in a war which was not her concern. He appreciated the danger posed by a Russian presence in Constantinople, but he was wholly opposed to doing anything which might inflame the situation. His was the traditional conservative stance the country party line, which generations of conservative statesmen had previously followed. The ideology, which stipulated that Britain should not involve herself in foreign wars or entanglements that were not of her direct concern. This, as normal as it may seem to us now, was contradicted passionately by the arguments put forward by Disraeli, who reasoned that Britain must intervene in such a significant event as a Russo-Turkish war, and that were she not to do so, her reputation would be ruined and her prestige absent. This clash of convictions formed the basis of the battle between Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary over the coming years, and in the years before as we have seen. Not only did they go a long way towards ending the long-standing friendship between Disraeli and Derby, they also ended up redefining what it meant to have a conservative foreign policy view. By the time the 20th century dawned, Disraeli's view of the importance of prestige, of the need to defend the national honour, and of the necessity in increasing one's power by force of arms, had been adopted by the Conservatives as the party line. Detractors from such a line were said to be weak, unmanly, and even, gasp, unpatriotic. Disraeli was far from the sole factor which guided British politics towards such an extreme line. British society as a whole was undergoing similar ideological changes as nations armed, empires grew and the world shrank, and it is a change we will bear witness to in the Liberal Party as well. But regardless, Disraeli's influence must be judged to be profound. The very fact that it was Disraeli's view of conservatism rather than Darby's that took hold can be attributed to the stance that the third individual took in this narrative. Lord Salisbury 
Salisbury was the Secretary of State of India in Disraeli's government and had been handpicked by the latter because of his pedigree, experience and obvious potential. It was accurate to call Salisbury a rising star politically, but the man himself neither established all that often his ambitions or his political desires. Since forming the cabinet with Disraeli in 1874, Salisbury's views had changed on foreign policy just as they changed on Disraeli himself. Originally, Salisbury had actually resigned in protest of Disraeli's Reform Act of 1868 and joined the 1874 cabinet, he told himself, to keep an eye on the Prime Minister should he try to act so irrationally again. By the beginning of 1877, though, there seemed to be a visible shift in Salisbury's stance. No longer could Darby rely upon him to oppose any reactionary policies as he normally would have. It could have been supposed that Disraeli's delegating of authority to Salisbury during the doomed Constantinople conference awakened within the bearded conservative statesman a sense of loyalty to the Prime Minister. What is more likely, though, is that Salisbury simply adjusted his views in line with the circumstances. With the war raging between the Turks and Russians and tensions at an all-time high in cabinet, Salisbury may have been simply persuaded that Britain's interest lay in expressing a warning to the Russians to not act too harshly. A third view posed by John Charmley is that Salisbury became more favourable towards Disraeli's stance just at the time when the Conservative Party was due to begin picking a successor to lead it into the future. With Darby absolving himself of that responsibility, and Disraeli ageing and plagued by a regular illness, the race for the leadership was wide open, so this was Salisbury's way of staking his claim. It was a claim which would land Salisbury a number of successful, defining premierships, but for now its most notable result was to alienate Darby even further from his cabinet colleagues. Indeed, as Darby was beginning to discover, once the initial shock of the declared war had worn off by early May 1877, he was fast becoming the only member of cabinet to oppose direct action against the Russians. The very existence of these three strands of opinion within our custom triumvirate should demonstrate a problem. If three different opinions existed, with Disraeli for it, Darby against it, and Salisbury flip-flopping between for and against, how would a Prime Minister reconcile the three or more opinions into a coherent policy? The answer to this was, for the first few months after war was declared, Disraeli didn't. As early as May 1877, Sir Stafford Northcote, leader of the Conservatives in the House of Commons and Chancellor of the Exchequer, complained that, We ought not to let the matter to drift, we ought to have a policy. Northcote was concerned that Britain would become entangled in a war policy without allies with any clear knowledge of the views or opinions of any other power and perhaps even without a distinct conception of what to do ourselves and how to do it. Northcote saw things in black and white when it came to the issue of cabinet divisions. As far as he was concerned, there was a war party and a peace party within it, and that was that. Yet though this would have been mightily convenient for us, individuals like Salisbury ruined this classification for the very reason that Salisbury and others like him waxed and waned with the tides of opinion. In addition, it was hard to precisely define what a war or peace party was, for example, all peace party ministers agreed that war with Russia should be avoided, 
yet some within this Pacific grouping simultaneously believed that Britain should occupy a point on the Dardanelles. Interestingly, Gallipoli was one of the options posed. Surely this aggressive action would lead to the very conflict they were trying to avoid. When quizzed by Darby about this contradiction, and why they thought this action was necessary since they approved of peace, one answered Darby that the best way to prevent war was to strike the first blow in peacetime. To the vast majority of cabinet ministers, the issue of keeping cabinet together was one held in the same regard as the Eastern question itself. On the 5th of May 1877, it was agreed that Britain's vital interests could be classified as the Suez Canal, the Bosphorus and the Persian Gulf. Yet the cabinet split into parties once again when the issue of how to defend these interests was raised. How should Britain communicate its concerns to Russia? Should it be a note in the form of a warning or a gentle reminder which could lead to an opportunity to reach an understanding in the future? Furthermore, would this theoretical action, either a warning or a gesture, be backed up in the future by either force or diplomacy respectively? These issues would raise the questions of prestige and national honour which were becoming ever-precious resources in the mind of Disraeli, his followers and the Queen. Was it dishonourable to send a gentle message to Russia, or would national prestige be satisfied by stiffly reminding the Russians not to endanger vital British interests? In the atmosphere of the international system, would foreign governments, Russia's included, only understand a harsh, forceful, even daring response from London? Furthermore, would such a response increase British prestige in the world? Despite the headache-inducing complexities involved in this diplomacy, Darby was able to deliver a note to Russian Ambassador Shuvalov in London, wherein he opted for the gentle reminder approach, and notified the Russian of the cabinet concerns. Shuvalov assured Darby that he could be free of apprehension on all three interests, but he added that a party did exist within Russia that desired to restore Russian rights to the Black Sea and increase Russian power thereafter. The existence of such parties, Shuvalov assured Darby, did not mean that Russian policy was directly influenced by them, and the Tsar may even become persuaded to abandon any ambitions regarding it altogether. To Darby, this response proved that no harsh measures were necessary, and no preemptive occupation would be required to send a message to Petersburg after all. Yet, to Disraeli, this was not enough. Britain should not merely be reacting to information that Russia sent. Instead, she must be creating the waves which Russia would have to surf. Disraeli weighed up the benefits of sending such a harsh note, but reasoned that such an act might jeopardise cabinet unity even further, so he satisfied himself in the end with simply keeping a debate going over the months of May and June about the nature of Britain's response. The initial lack of action in the Russo-Turkish War enabled him and others to debate such apparently trivial issues, but events in that theatre would soon necessitate a more concrete response from London. The fact that the British government had time to react and divide itself into a number of different camps was only possible because of the strange way in which the Russo-Turkish War began. Although the Russians had invaded the Balkans over a series of critical bridges and had passed through Romania, they had underestimated the size and organisation of the Ottomans already guarding the region. 
Only 185,000 Russians had crossed into the Balkans, and by mid-June these would cross over the Danube to realise that the Ottomans had just over 200,000 well-experienced veterans awaiting. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Their arrival. The decision was made to attack Pleven on the 19th of July, 1877, which was a critical hub in Bulgaria, boasting 40,000 Ottoman defenders. Yet this campaign sagged and was beaten back due to a lack of numbers on the Russian part, and it wouldn't be until August of that year that the Russians would add more men. Soon after the July failure, Pleven was besieged, but again the Turks would not surrender until months of pressure gained by overwhelming numbers and Romanian assistance which enabled the city to be taken on the 10th of December 1877. Historians have come to regard the siege of Pleven as the single most important holding action that the Ottomans made in their final years of empire. Were they unable to hold the Russians here, Constantinople would have surely fallen by the end of summer, and, in fact, a world war could have resulted. Though this, I feel, greatly simplifies matters. The Russians got a badly bloodied nose from the whole experience. The high command came to the embarrassing conclusion that the new rifle that they were just about to introduce into Russian service was already outclassed by the Turkish equivalent. Turkish soldiers were armed with a Turkish version of the Winchester repeater rifles which had originally been bought from the United States. Epiphanies like these were significant because following this lesson, most other continental armies began the process of upgrading their armaments to the more modern models of repeating or magazine rifles, as the old breech loaders were finally abandoned. The fact that the Russian high command had to learn this lesson, and that it seemed unable to beat the Turks when circumstances were equal, either in the Balkans or in the Caucasus theatre, where the Armenians had placed all hope in the Russian promise of freedom, demonstrates to me at least that the Russians had completely underestimated their sick man of Europe enemy, while Europe had overestimated the strength that Russia possessed too. This would not be the first or last time that Russia's power would amount to a damp squib. The Russo-Japanese War was perhaps the most obvious, but the First World War also bore witness to a seriously rude awakening for the Russian high command. 
What's important for us, though, is the fact that it didn't seem to cause either Disraeli or others to reconsider the assumptions about Russian power they continued to hold. And this is a pattern that will continue up to World War I. All that Disraeli and his cabinet ministers saw, once Plevin had surrendered and the Russo-Romanian force advanced down the Balkans, was that Constantinople seemed once again to be in grave danger. But before we look at that, let's examine 1877 once the war had happened in more detail. It had been a year of divisions for the British cabinet. Thanks to Disraeli's preference to stick it to the Russians, he had used unusual channels of communication to get his message across. In early May, he had used the connections of the military attaché in St. Petersburg, Frederick Wellesley, to deliver a message to the Tsar that the cabinet was united and that all ministers opposed any idea of a Russian occupation of Constantinople. This move, which was behind Darby's back in the first place, is a glaring example of Disraeli's insistence to go it alone and substitute state policy for his own. Though he had the Queen's passionate support in the endeavour, the very act reflects the declining nature of the Disraeli-Darby axis that had once characterised the government. And worse was to come for this axis. Over the summer of 1877, when Fred Wellesley was attempting to make plain the message Disraeli had explained to him, Disraeli tried to persuade Cabinet that this secret course was the correct policy. In other words, though he did not tell any of them that Wellesley was representing them in the Russian capital, he did try to see if he could bring their views in line with the message Fred was sending to the Tsar. It didn't quite work out, though. In fact, by Disraeli's very insistence that Britain would lose respect in the eyes of the great powers if she was not seen to have a significant impact upon the developments of the unfolding war, he illustrated to Darby in the plainest terms that they both stood on diametrically opposed pillars of conservative thought. Disraeli insisted on the 14th of August 1877 that We should be disgraced if we did not interfere effectually to prevent a second campaign. England would not keep her position in Europe if she did not take a leading role in the settlement. To this, Darby discerned that Disraeli sincerely and really believes that it will be better for us to enter a great war and spend £100 million upon it than not to appear to have had a large share in the decision come to when peace is made. Essentially, both men had drifted towards the two extreme ends of foreign policy within their party, while Darby did not think prestige worth buying so dear, and believed the majority are on our side, Disraeli continued to argue for a stiff message to be sent to Russia, or for a preemptive act to be taken in Constantinople, or for war preparations to be made. Yet Disraeli had the benefit of a fickle public on his side, who had received reports of heroic Turkish defences at Plevin and were beginning to become more bellicose and anti-Russian as a result. What was more, even though Disraeli didn't get the approval to send an official message to the Tsar, he was still able to use Wellesley in St. Petersburg to warn the Tsar about the dangers of launching another military campaign in the region once Plevin had fallen. With things apparently going his way, Disraeli's mood and dare began to increase, and Darby believed that this was a sign that he planned to break up the cabinet and replace him and others with more belligerent ministers. 
Such an act would certainly have the support of the Queen, whom Darby knew only too well despised him for his conservative foreign policy and adored Disraeli for his indulgence of her. But Disraeli could and would never jeopardise the cabinet unless he knew of any viable alternatives. Besides, the current model enabled him to still say what he wanted to the Tsar without Darby knowing about it. He tried a different tactic, teaming up with Queen Victoria to persuade the cabinet ministers of the need to follow a more direct and unified policy than in the last season. The cabinet received messages which insisted upon a policy which would place this government in a clear and unintelligible position and would disembarrass them all of the difficulties which hampered them in the last session. This policy, of course, as Disraeli and the Queen made plain, consisted of a warning to the Tsar not to launch another concerted attack at the Turks in the Balkans, but it also insisted on keeping the borders of Bulgaria within the agreed borders of May 1877, holding out an honourable peace by handing Bessarabia to the Russians, as well as offering that London would mediate between the two belligerents. Disraeli, fully appreciating that Derby would have opposed this line on numerous grounds, requested that Darby be the one to present it to Cabinet, an act which was not lost on his now former friend. Darby would allow British representatives to mediate a peace deal, but the added caveat Disraeli inserted of the necessity of threatening British force during this mediation was something he totally rejected. Despite all the tricks the Prime Minister had pulled, Darby was confident that the Cabinet would be with him, and for the moment he was right. Gradually, the ministers voiced their differences in opinion to Disraeli's plans, which ranged from not wanting to further isolate Britain to even not wanting to get involved in the mediation process. Disraeli had clearly miscalculated his powers of persuasion, but he would also have to admit that Darby was far better at estimating the opinions of the ministers than he had been. Still, the Prime Minister did not admit defeat, since it was only early days yet. Though a group of three ministers, Salisbury, Derby and Northcote, remained opposed to war under most circumstances by mid-October 1877, Disraeli planned to continue the month by chipping away at Derby's credibility and undermining his authority in foreign affairs. To do this, the Prime Minister brought back the old chestnut of cabinet leaks into the general discourse. These leaks were blamed casually on Darby because of his wife's links to numerous high flyers in British society, including Shuvlov, the Russian ambassador. Supposedly, as some historians have insisted without any shred of evidence, since there is none, Lady Darby was informed of cabinet events by her husband, who took thorough notes himself, and she then passed these notes on to Shuvlov, her exotic Russian lover. Darby appreciated the scale of the problem, but he turned to the drink instead of sorting out his wife, and thus, though he cannot be entirely blamed for it, the Russians and many others were wise to British policy, and to the bare fact that the cabinet was not as united as Disraeli liked Fred Wellesley to tell the Tsar. This lie was supported by the testimonies of Disraeli and later Salisbury, but they were easier to believe thanks in large part to the fact that Darby is in desperate need of receiving a proper biography of his career which would demonstrate his innocence. As iconic figures go, Salisbury and of course Disraeli have the advantage of being renowned statesmen, but that does not make their accounts infallible. For the record, Darby at first brushed the rumours aside, 
but once these rumours had been fanned into accusations thanks to the sly Prime Minister, he addressed them directly, angrily insisting that the accusations were baseless. In fact, as John Charmley noted, Disraeli may have had more to do with spreading cabinet leaks than he perhaps realised, for while he attempted to light a fire under Darby, he was hosting large dinner parties and regularly bemoaned the fact that numerous parties of opinion existed within the cabinet, which made United Action difficult. The issue of cabinet leaks is a complex one, and we're going to leave it behind for the moment, but it is worth noting how important the notion of a unified cabinet was. To Disraeli it was more dangerous that a potential enemy could learn that the cabinet was not united behind a common strategy, because this would enable said enemy to delay and ignore the bluffing which Disraeli regularly engaged in. In contrast to their absolutist rival, democratic Britain could not act without unity. To do so risked a collapse of government in times of crisis, and even up to 1914, which is where we will see this model represented again most clearly, the search for cabinet unity consumed the mind and workload of the then British Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey. November 1877 was a month of limbo for the cabinet. Disraeli continued to argue for harsher action and sought to distance himself from Derby, while Derby continued to insist that Constantinople was not sufficiently endangered to risk a war with Russia. In late October, British officials had secured guarantees from Vienna that should the Russians genuinely threaten the Ottoman capital, then London would be able to rely upon Austrian assistance against the Russians. This, claimed Darby, should remove the need for rash action since Britain had once again secured for herself an ally on the continent, and her apparent isolation of the first half of 1877 seemed to have come to an end. But this was not enough for Disraeli. In his quest to do something notable, he conjured a scheme which would enable Britain to pledge her continued neutrality to Russia, in return for a pledge from Russia that she would not occupy Constantinople. Though he remained unconvinced of its necessity and thought that it may actually embolden the Russians by giving them more freedom than St. Petersburg had initially thought they had had, Darby went along with it, seeing the deal as a compromise between both sides of the cabinet and the best way to keep its varied opinions together. When it came time to writing the message which would communicate the deal to the Russians, though, Darby found himself in difficulty. It is a very awkward paper to draw, he told Disraeli on the 19th of November 1877. Darby didn't believe that the Russians even intended to go further than Adrianople, and he feared that communicating this message would actually encourage the Russians to push further than they had originally intended. While he deliberated, on the 24th of November, Disraeli drafted a message of his own, but without the notable inclusion of a pledge of British neutrality. In other words, Disraeli now seemed to want Darby to merely send a request to the Russians that they would not occupy Constantinople. Disraeli claimed this new document had become necessary since Darby had moved too slowly and events had overtaken the Foreign Secretary, but Darby rejected this. As the situation intensified between the two great statesmen, Lady Darby, accurately described the early winter of 1877 to be anything but a pleasant one, and it was about to get worse. With the Russian victory at Plevin on the 11th of December 1877, Darby had to admit that the Russians were becoming increasingly bellicose and ambitious, even the normally calm Shuvalov. 
the combination of a fear of Russian advances with the glorification of Turk resistance seem to have erased completely the atrocitarian movement of the past, and now a great Russophobia set in. This movement, Jingoism, gained its name from the popular verse, We don't want to fight, but by Jingo if we do, we've got the men, we've got the ships, we've got the money too. Ending with the emphatic, The Russians shall not have Constantinople. To Disraeli, public opinion and that of the cabinet seem to have at last swung in his direction. With fear of the Russians at an all-time high, and with media outlets lamenting the danger that Constantinople was now in, surely it was only a matter of time before the Prime Minister managed to move his government towards war with the Russian Empire. As the new year of 1878 dawned, only his former friend Lord Darby seemed to stand in the way of this eventuality. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 